Good day, nerds. This is Megan coming at you with another Cantina Conversation. Today's episode features Elizabeth Winthrop Elsa. We're talking about her book, Daughter of Spies, Wartime Secrets, Family Lies, out on October 25th. Um, This is a really fascinating piece and really enjoyable conversation. I learned a lot um, about just what what it was like for Elizabeth to share her mother's story. Um, And just, I appreciated her authenticity as well. Um, And I hope, I think you guys will like it too. So without further ado, here's Elizabeth. Today we're talking with Elizabeth Winthrop Alsop. We're talking about her book, Daughter of Spies, Wartime Secrets, Family Lies. It comes out on October 25th. Elizabeth, thanks so much for meeting with us today, for taking the time. Uh, This book, it was really fascinating and interesting. And you could tell that I just appreciated like your honesty and, and how authentic you were. And, you know, you were coming from a place of being sympathetic towards all of it. I loved how it turned into like a history and then family history and then more like then it got really into the memoir stuff. And so mm-hmm. I thought it was super cool and I learned a lot and it was really interesting. So I'm excited to, to talk to you more about it today. Great. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Terrific. absolutely. Um, okay. So to get started, can you give like a synopsis just so people can, who are listening, people can follow along with the conversation? Sure. So this is, um, I've written a lot of fiction, but this is my first memoir. And it was somewhat started because I'm the daughter of a famous writing father. And it occurred to me, I I wrote a novel uh, about a little girl who worked in a mill in Vermont in 1910. And after I finished the novel, Counting on Grace, I, I realized I knew more about that little girl than I knew about my own mother. So my mother was born in Gibraltar, and uh, she was a classic British mother. Keep calm and carry on, no point fussing, quite removed. And um, I decided that my father had written books, he had written a memoir, he had play written about him. Everybody knew about him, and nobody knew really about my mother. So that's what drove me to write it. So it starts in part one with their love story. They met during the war. They had a whirlwind courtship, absolutely from the movies, and uh, married in the middle of a bombing raid in London in June 44. She came over to America with him. I mean, not with him. She had to travel separately, but she was 18 and pregnant with my oldest brother, crossing the North Atlantic by herself, and my father followed. He was in the British Army. He was American, but he was in the British Army. So the first part talks about that, but I decided to do a braided narrative because my mother was set in dementia and losing her memories, losing her mind. So I go back and forth in part one. In part two, I really talk about the marriage from the point of view of a little girl, myself, growing up in 1950s Cold War Washington. And then in part three, I go back to really myself and my mother. So it's a three-part book. It's a family history. It's a memoir. I brought all of my fiction techniques to the book. And I think that's what helped me understand how to approach it, how to write it. Yeah, I can. Yeah, because I was like kind of, that's a good segue into like one of my questions, because you have a lot of fictional, a lot of fiction works published under your belt. And you did touch on why you decided to embark on this new project. In what ways, like how... 
was that experience different and maybe like biggest lessons learned um mm-hmm. from like to switching over almost like a new headspace um a new mm-hmm. approach or you know kind of how you touched on it you use, you use the same approach a little bit but you know how what were the other kind of like differences in those experiences the weirdest part about it this is the one thing i say is that people i can't remember what i live what i wrote so if people, I would say to them, wait a minute, is the story about the dead dog in the book? You know, I, I had that kind of strange <laughs> experience. Whereas when you write fiction, you make it all up. So there's mm. no question, you know. Um, but I began to realize that I could treat my parents as fictional characters. I could use the techniques that I'd learned in writing fiction in developing them as real living people. I never, I thought originally I could wrote an, I could write a novel. And it would be about them, but I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get the distance I needed. And I thought, mm-hmm. no, their story needs to be told the way it is. So I also learned uh, that you can use dialogue in memoir. It's not that it has to be exactly what they said. It has to be the emotional truth of what they said or what I heard or what they said to me. So I used that. But the most interesting thing to me about memoir is that in the end, you learn more about yourself mm. than about anybody you're writing about. So an example of that is my mother was an alcoholic. She used um, alcohol to medicate her fears because she arrived at 18. My father very quickly became quite a famous journalist. She had to have the Supreme Court justice for dinner. She had to dine out at the British embassy. She, and she was 18. And she was, had, she was Catholic. She conceived 12 children. I have five brothers and one little sister who died. So she was always trying to juggle these roles of mother and her, et cetera. And in the beginning of the book, I'm really talking about her going into dementia. And I go back and forth with her love affair with my father. When I get to the middle part, part two, which is about me growing up in Cold War Washington, I did not include anything about my mother's. I didn't want the reader empathizing with her Mm. because I had not had a mother when I was growing up. I had had a distant, not very present alcoholic mother. And so I did not realize how much I resented that. So that when I came to part two, I had to write me. I wanted me center stage. Um, and that was a shock. That was what I learned from writing the memoir is how deeply that sadness was inside me about how distant she had been as a mother. But in the end, I came around to a very, um, I wouldn't call it, I'd call it a very honest relationship with her, which was made it easier when she died. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, yeah, her life is really interesting and it's just, how many wives in any like political or elite social circle have similar stories of, you know, having to entertain. I love how you were like, you even mentioned it. You're like, I don't know on any week she had to entertain. She had to be prepared for as little as few six and as many as 20. And I was was like, God, that's just the reality of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Being like having those connections and having that household name and it was interesting having like, you know, your experience as a, as a child, like, you know, through the child's eyes, because it's like, yeah, you don't, mm-hmm. 
grasp like Mm -hmm. you're in you're in it but you don't always grasp all those little like meanings and the side glances and the whispers and the the exactly the full context of the situation exactly yeah and it's 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 like fascinating um you know, I don't know his, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously I'm a big bookworm and I don't, I've, I've read a few memoirs this year. And so it's always nice to like switch it up. And I like how it just gives you that little peek and going, you know, for you, I love how honest you were that you're like, well, I wanted to be about me because I didn't realize I resented that. But I think that just, it shows kind of like the generational, like the trickle mm-hmm. effects of, of like that whole generation of that whole, and then the generations that followed. Yeah. And I think also with them, the fact that my is called Daughter of Spies, my mother was at 17, a decoding agent for MI5, which is the British Secret Service, you know, bombs dropping all around her. She goes up on the roof of the building. She sees St. Paul's Chapel destroyed um, by a bomb. My father dropped into, you know, France right after D-Day. So in a very dangerous situation, mm-hmm. they were spies and they kept secrets from each other, which they had to do. She had signed the official secrets act. He, of course, said to her the night before he dropped, I don't know if I'll come home. I can't tell you where I'm dropping. I'm not allowed to, you know, it's France, but I can't tell you where it became a habit. Mm. So they kept secrets from each other in the marriage. And there, as you say, those side glances, those inferences, they were very, they kind of held on to their feelings very tightly. So nobody ever yelled at each other, mm. but you felt this tension in the house. And you could almost cut it with a knife sometimes. And that was exactly, as you say, a, a famous man. He had a wife who was beautiful, young, and an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. How was he going to keep that under wraps yeah. through all of that? So it was a, a, a unique, not a unique childhood, but to combine the political tension, Washington in the Cold War, spies coming in and out of the back door. Daddy interviewed them all the time. His best friends worked for the CIA. Every single one of his best friends did. So there was a hushed, whispering, ominous quality to our growing up. Yeah, how eerie that would that mm-hmm. would have been. I can only imagine just like being in a household where, yeah, like I said, like as a child, you don't quite understand, and then you get older, and you're like, oh, like <laughs> how that's what was happening. Yeah. yeah, like it seems like really intense, but not directly on the surface. It's just that it's that 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 vibe, that energy, and yeah, like you said, like you can cut it. Yeah, that's just the one interesting thing that is just so unique to. To the, that type of marriage, just with those two professions, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, because she was exactly. probably one of the few. Yeah, she was probably one of the few people that understood. And exactly. Herself, and you know. she used to say that when she got to America and she would go to a party, first of all, the American women were jealous of her because she was gorgeous and 18. And she would go over in the corner and all the men would surround her because they were all soldiers. And mm-hmm. so they, they, she could connect with them. Mm-hmm. The women here had been knitting socks and writing letters and, you know, so it was, and she said it made it worse. They, the women were then more eager to ostracize her. Yeah. So that was a very difficult early yeah. time. For Unfortunately, her. that probably contributed to like the loneliness that she felt. And yeah, definitely, her. definitely. 
Um, I want to hear about your research process and maybe like the most fascinating things or surprising things that um, you learned. Okay. So the research uh, was, first of all, I love research and it's one of the problems because you have to stop (laughs) researching and start writing. Yes. (laughs) Um, And this was a unique book because yes, I could Google, you know, World War II, when exactly did this battle happen or that battle happen? But really the research was interviewing her, not only on tape, but on videotape. I did Mm. two videotapes, one of her growing up in Gibraltar, which is a very strange place to grow up. It's a British (laughs) crown colony. It's a rock in the middle of the Mediterranean. You don't hear many people grew up there. And the second book I put in front, well, the first one, I put a book in front of her when we interviewed her. So she would point to a picture and say, oh, yes, that was King George's coronation. That's why I'm dressed up like a brownie or that's why the dogs have bows around their necks or whatever. And then the second thing we interviewed her about was was World War II. What was it like to have uh, a drink with a man at at a bar and never see him again because he never came home? So there was a lot of that kind of interviewing. In addition, my father has written a number of books, and one of them was a memoir about dying of leukemia. He died of leukemia when he was 60. And um, he wrote a memoir called Stay of Execution, a sort of memoir. So there were stories in there, although those were ones that I knew, you know, that he had (laughs) told us. But he also wrote a book right after he came home from the war called Sub Rosa about the OSS that he had jumped with. The, and he buried his real stories there under other people's names, mm. which I did not realize till I started reading this book. Then I found in the basement letters that my father wrote to my grandmother and grandfather in Connecticut talking about meeting mummy. Mm. I know I've said this before, but I have just met the woman I'm going to marry. You know, and that was five days after he met her. So that kind of research. And then the other fascinating thing was I went on a trip to England and I went to every single place where my mother had lived. And Mm. ironically, except for her flat in uh, in Chelsea in London, I could get into every single place. Part of the reason was she went to a Catholic convent school north of London that is now a Marriott Hanbury golf spa. Okay. (laughs) So I said to my husband, listen, we have American Express points that mummy died with. Let's Mm. use them. Mm. And we ended up in this sumptuous room. And I realized that eight girls would have slept in that room in her time. So that kind of research where I literally walked along the path that she had walked on, or I went to see her grandmother's house And they let me in and let me go stand in her bedroom. I mean, the people who owned it. So that sort of research was really pretty incredible. I think that when you ask about the most surprising thing, you know, I interviewed my mother and she would tell me these stories very offhandedly. Like, don't make me get emotional about this. Mm. For example, her her father, she was evacuated after Gibraltar right into London, right into the middle of the war. She sailed right through Dunkirk, the um, evacuation of the British Expeditionary Force, etc. Her her father was evacuated 10 months later, and he brought with him her two corgis, Romulus Mm -hmm. and Remus, stupidly. 
because there was there was a quarantine on. There was no way they were going to let those dogs in. So I said to London, so I said to Mummy, well, what happened? Oh, she said, they were shot and buried at sea. No tears, no. That must have been terrible. Well, it was war. That was the way she was. It was like, don't make me get emotional about this. Don't yeah. impute, you know, don't impute emotional feelings to this. And that's really the way she always was. Yeah, I remember reading that and it was just so the first thing I thought, I think it was like, well, I don't know if if that was just like a per- a personality trait or just the era and the situation that she was growing up in or she was used to because it's like, yeah, you kind of you don't have time to right. to wallow or or right. you just got to like because otherwise, if you stopped and paused for every like tragic thing, you might be not overwhelmed. Make it. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. And it would be so much worse because, yeah, I, I imagine that just during that time and there are so many like different perspectives depending on which side you were on, what part of the world mm-hmm. you were and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I remember you you touched on that in the book where you're like, I don't know, she just everybody was carrying away and there she was standing like unfazed at the top of the roof. I think it was that moment. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was just I thought it was so I don't know. It was just like, yeah, she, you know, she's badass she was or exactly. even, at, least, she was, at least in the brain yeah. right like you know yeah no she was kind of a badass in a good way and she just kept moving on I'm not going to let this pull me down I'll never forget going back to see her because I live in New York after 9-11 and I said to her mommy 3,000 people died in that tower and she nodded and said terrible she said one night in the east end of London during the war <laughs> it puts things in perspective yes yes <laughs> one night yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like you don't want to say desensitized, but at the same time, it's like, well, yeah, it's horrible, but it's like a fraction. It's a uh, shock. Yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. shock to us because we haven't seen anything Experience like that. that. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. so long. And yeah. I don't want to show my age, but I was like, still, oh, yeah. I was like, my. <laughs> oh, no. You know, I was like my freshman year of uh, high school when when 9-11 happened. And I just mm-hmm. I remember even then, like I was 14 at the time. And even then, I I didn't grasp the seriousness of yeah. it until later, like year after year. And it's like another anniversary. And I'm like, I was getting older. I was like, oh, yeah, like, no wonder that was the only thing on TV. No wonder, like, yeah. my parents were glued, like what and you know years later when you see all the footage from either different points of view or hear the like brave stories and it's just you know there's so many so many little pieces that you don't realize and that's like what made me think you know that was kind of like what i was reminded of reading through your mom's story and your story where you realize you pick up on these little pieces later Mm -hmm. and you learn these pieces later and how they all make sense and you know it's like well holy crap but it's just fascinating because you were like in an intimate you were even like in the intimate in the frame without but like looking forward because you didn't really like yeah. know what was going on <laughs> like or you yes, did but exactly. you didn't know like what it meant right and no I didn't know what it meant and I, I think that's I came away at the end not only you know realizing about myself but having enormous feeling like she was very brave mm-hmm. you know she was a very brave woman she left when she got on that boat and sailed away from London she left her mother, her father, her best friend, her new husband, and her only brother had been dive-bombed mm-hmm. by a German Stuka and killed in North Africa mm-hmm. the day she met my father. 
So, you know, she just sailed into a new world. I think there was part of her also that certainly figured out that London would be a pretty terrible place to live after the war. It was bombed to smithereens. It was going to take years to come back. And in fact, the coldest winter ever was Mm. after the war. Mm. So she also, I think, grasped at a new life. Let me go. Let me get out of here. Because she really didn't know Daddy that well. They didn't know (laughs) Daddy that well. I mean, really. um, And that often happened in those kinds of marriages. Right. I think I I remember she said it was was wartime. Like, yeah, yeah, that was just yeah. really common where they'd fall in love and boom, that was it. And they didn't All have time don't. to, yeah, didn't have time yeah. to court for too long, didn't have time to have a yeah. long engagement. It was just like, nope, let's go. Okay, time to let's make babies. Go. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she, uh, my father called her from his regiment to say he had gotten five days off and they were going to get married five days later. She didn't have anything. So I said, Mommy, what did you do for a wedding dress? She said, oh, I took my tennis dress <laughs> and refashioned it. And it is. When you look at it, it's yeah. a tennis dress. Yeah. You know? She made it work. I could, I could see she how made that it work. would be a style. Yeah. 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 No, she looked quite stylish. And she had her bouquet tucked into her belt. And I said, why didn't you throw the bouquet? She said, because my best friend, B couldn't mm. get the time off to come to the wedding. So there was to throw it to. I mean, yeah. just little details like yeah. that. It's amazing, yeah. really. Yeah. And it's almost like you can kind of understand how we go on off on a tangent here, but it makes me think like, well, it's like, no wonder why they look, I feel like this happens a lot where the older generations look down on like yeah. each the subsequent generations, but it's like, you know what? No wonder, but it's like, that's almost like a good thing that it's not things like that aren't still like happening that we're not, yeah. at least Thank not heavens. You not know, at least level. not, you know, here, I mean, there are still like wars going on in other parts of the world, but it was just, that was like, just so, so mm-hmm. huge, you know, and so, so huge horrible. and intense and affected so many people it in did. this country as well as around the world. So yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. No, and interesting. Um, and so you grew up with like your mom, I think, I think it's also interesting how like, cause she had it, obviously had like an English accent. So mm-hmm. like, you know, you grew up, but then wasn't she... Was she like a quarter Spanish? Because it's in where's Gibraltar mm-hmm. located, like near Spain. So the story about Gibraltar, she always she said everybody on Gibraltar is a mongrel. That was the <laughs> word she would use. And I said, What do you mean? She said, in eighteen oh five, Napoleon marched into Italy and told all the Italian men that they were gonna be in his army. And she said they all jumped into boats and rowed or sailed, whatever, to Gibraltar. So her great-grandfather was from Genoa. His name Rancia, and actually Queen Victoria made him a judge. Mm. Um, her mother was half Spanish and half English. So mm. she was a quarter Spanish, in, you know, come from her mother's line, and her mm-hmm. father was English. Her father was a British merchant, which was very typical for Gibraltar. So, but they are mongrel. They, they are made up of <laughs> Everybody around the Mediterranean comes, lands on that rock. It's odd. Yeah, that's, no, I think that's so interesting because it's, yeah, just culture is just so tied to history in ways that we don't 
lot, you know, other people know, people who study it Mm -hmm. know, but the things Mm -hmm. you learn, you know, even like right down to like, not just customs, but like the food, like, why is this food famous here? Oh, because when they, they came over and colonized, they brought the pigs over. Like, for example, (laughs) it's like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like so fascinating. Or the fact, the fact I call her mummy. No, none of my friends call (laughs) her mother mummy. It's a very British, British name, you know, very tied to that. So, and then yeah. something that I was like trying to remember too, with your father's connections was his mom, was it his mom or his grandmother was Franklin Roosevelt's niece? Yeah. His grandmother, my great grandmother was Theodore Roosevelt's sister. Teddy Roosevelt's sister. Teddy so, Roosevelt's sister. Okay. And his mother, my grandmother was Theodore Roosevelt's niece. Got and it. Eleanor Roosevelt's first cousin. Got it. Okay. Because so, I, I know I was trying to remember like, well, which time period? Because I'm like, wait, there's yeah. Franklin, there's Theodore. Like, yeah. But I know, I know they were fifth cousins, right? Like they yeah, were they still. Were. Yeah. They were all wrapped up together. And the funny thing about the Roosevelt family is they had a real parting of the ways when Eleanor from the Theodore branch married Franklin from that branch. And Theodore branch were all Republicans. Mm. And Eleanor jumped over the fence and went, you know, and and married Franklin and was a Democrat and was, you know, a force of nature. The thing that always bugged me was that my grandmother, she loved Eleanor. She they had they saw each other. My grandmother lived in Avon, Connecticut. Eleanor came and stayed there all the time. She never thought it was important that any of her grandchildren meet Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> so I've met more people in my life who said, oh, Eleanor did that. And and I was 14 when Eleanor Roosevelt died. And, you know, I almost didn't know I was related to her. It yeah. was very much put kind of aside, you know, don't don't bank on that Roosevelt name. So we never really thought about it until yeah. years later. However, I did have a very close relationship with Theodore Roosevelt's daughter who was Alice Roosevelt Longworth, and she lived in Washington. And her granddaughter and I went to the same school. So I, she would pick me up and bring me to her house for tea on a Thursday afternoon. And she had a pillow that said, a famous pillow that said, if you have something nasty to say about someone, come sit by me. She was <laughs> really, was the original wicked child. And I loved her. And she liked me because I was a writer and an eavesdropper. <laughs> so, you know, my father would have certain people over for dinner. I would go there. She'd say, okay, who came for dinner? What did they say? Who was there? What was she wearing? You know, she loved all that. And I just fed it to her. Yeah. You just, just like, oh, well, well yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, <laughs> so so did you were like, you know, at the time I got the, I got the impression uh, reading that part where you, you didn't think much about it. You were like, oh, sure. Like, and yeah. just, like, you know, we're you know and you but you speak fondly of these times but is that really basically what it was you didn't think much of it you were just answering her questions you weren't thinking like oh yeah so here i got the new gossip for you right (laughs) right no i just loved being there i mean that comes in a section of the book where i'm looking for other mothers really because my mother was not very present and she was a place thursday afternoon yay i get to be with mrs l and it was just because the sad thing was that often we would come home in the afternoon and my brother Ian is the closest to me would meet me at the kitchen door. And if mommy was in bad shape, she'd be locked up in her bedroom 
So he would just go put his thumbs down and we would scatter. Generally, we would go down to the basement because my brother Joe ran a whole electronic uh, kind of laboratory down there. And we were always doing incredible things at his behest. But it was just, again, a way he was like our downstairs father. My father traveled a huge amount. He was gone in other countries three to four months a year. So poor mummy. I mean, she was left Mm. having to carry all of this. And there were more and more children and more and more. So it was, you know, when I went to Mrs. L's, it was a safe place. It was a safe place. That was really the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I could tell you did like that came off the Mm. page for sure. That's I I respect that. um, You know, your parents were like, don't lean on that. Don't name drop. You know, yeah, cause... exactly. That was a huge sin in our house. You don't drop names and you don't yeah. um, and you don't use your name to get things. I did a little bit because I got a couple of jobs in Washington that I got because my last name was also. But I worked for a newspaper and I'm mm. sure they hired me as a summer intern because they knew my father's work. Mm. But in general, and then when I published, I this is the first time I've used the name also. I did All notice through my that. writing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to stay away from that name and not look as if, oh, because of him, I got published. Right. And when I first was published, he was very well known. Now, you know, he's fit into history, but in the first years, he was known. So, and so, did you choose to add um, also to this pen name to this piece because you were embracing telling that story, telling your story because of that last name, you know? I went back to my maiden name and I, I wanted the connection to be made and I wanted to claim it. And I think also I thought, publish 53 books. You can, you can afford now to use the name also. <laughs> yeah, the, you've, yeah, you've definitely your proven thing. yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you've proven yourself. You don't need to, you know, worry about it anymore. And, and I did want it to connect to my father and mother because that's really what started the whole book. Yeah. So, Definitely. Okay. So you kind of touched on this before. How did this project help you navigate like the stress of your mother's situation and like Mm -hmm. eventual after she passed, like eventual like grief or grieving process? Like, Mm -hmm. cause I, I could see how that was like therapeutic Mm -hmm. and a lot, a big, a huge step for both of you. So like, yeah. And you did kind of touch on it before, but like how, you know, how did that, how do you feel like that helped you navigate like that whole experience? That's a great question. It it really, in the beginning, so anybody who lives with someone who has Alzheimer's or dementia knows that the, the reality, uh, the doctor once said to me, it's as if your mother wakes up every day in the middle of a movie, doesn't know what started. She doesn't know where it's going. She used to say things like, I, I just, there's something wrong with my eyes. And we would have her eyes checked. It was that she couldn't remember the beginning of the sentence when the, she got to the end of the sentence. Mm. So she couldn't make head nor tail. And she was a huge reader. So she couldn't make head or tail. So in the early times, I'd get very frustrated. You know, mommy, we just talked about the cardinal on the bird feeder. And then I said, no, wait a minute, stop this. Don't, don't make this end of her life like this and that's when I went as I call it spelunking in the basement and I began to bring up all of these documents and that would bring her back Mm -hmm. it would it would bring her back when I read the letter that daddy wrote to his mother 
about what she was like, she just burst out laughing. She said, I never read that letter. You know, I didn't know what he was saying about me. So it would kind of bring her back and it would allow us to communicate in a pretty honest way that we hadn't done so much before. And then, so it really, and it also helped me amazingly to say, I am telling your story, mommy. Daddy has been so dominant here mm. for so long. And she used to tell people I was writing her autobiography. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't correct it. I said, whatever. Sometimes she would snap at me and say, I didn't, you didn't get that right. Or I didn't, you know, and I just say, okay, I'll fix it, you know, but it was a story she told me. So I knew that I had gotten it right. The best thing was at the very end. When she was in the nursing home, we, we tried to keep her at home and too many things went wrong and she needed really 24-hour care and so on. So we put her in a lovely nursing home. And my brothers, the, the deal I had with my brothers was, look, I am the closest physically to mommy and I am the only girl. So you know this is going to land on my shoulders, boys. And said, yes. And I said, so you're going to pay me. <laughs> he said, what? I said, yep, I'm not going to charge full rates, $40 an hour and all my travel expenses because I go back and forth all the time from New York to Washington. But I also said to them, that doesn't let you off the hook. There are six of us and there are seven days in the week. Each one of you gets a day to call mommy. And I would say, all right, Ian, Stuart was there two weeks ago, your turn. And they'd fly in and visit with her. So at the very end in the nursing home, one of my brothers called and said, I don't know what to say to her. You can't keep a conversation going. I said, show her the video. Mm -hmm. Show her the video of her talking about her childhood in Gibraltar. It gives her such pleasure. Sometimes she doesn't even really realize she's talking. Yeah. But it gives her pleasure. And then suddenly you'll get a new detail. Oh, she said one time when I thought, you know, she really wasn't tracking, she said, oh, I remember when we were watching the rockets come into Green Park and we were standing on that balcony at the Ritz during the honeymoon and I turned around and your father was hiding under the stairs <laughs> because he found the, the much scarier than she did because she'd lived with him so much. Mm. So things like that would still come out. So it made her diminishment less painful. Mm -hmm. And if I ever talk to anybody who's working with an Alzheimer's, I would say that. I would say, play them the music. I used to play her Vera Lynn, who sang Land of Hope and Glory and the Nightingale sings in Berkeley Square and When We Meet Again. She was the famous British singer during World War II. So I would play her that music or I would read her daddy's letters or I would show her the video or I would ask her another question and it just kept bringing her back you know not all the way back and it would mm. disappear very quickly I mean she couldn't remember who came for lunch an hour before I mean one time I went into the kitchen I'd been there five days and she always had afternoon tea because it was British right mm -hmm. and I went into the kitchen to put to pick up the kettle and bring it back where it came back to pour her tea and she said, oh, love, how nice of you to come visit. And I'd been <gasps> there for five days. <laughs> so I was gone for 10 minutes to the kitchen and back. That's what was so dis yeah. dis disorienting. It's disorienting. Yeah. 
I can imagine like the days maybe you think that you have like a good flow yeah. and then something and then, like that happens. Yeah. 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 One yeah. time she, she got away. She, she ran away, uh-huh. which is very typical for Alzheimer's patients. And she was on crutches. So we were pretty impressed. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love all far, those stories but... that you, that you included. Um, Cause it just, it, it's like, cause you, you know, you talk about how, you know, the, the brave parts, but then you also, you know, <laughs> the result of like what you and your brothers <clears throat> had to deal mm-hmm. with because that those personality traits just, um, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> which just kept carrying yeah. on. No not easy what. to live with. Yeah. Not easy. Not easy as children <laughs> to live with. As I yeah. said, she never hugged me. Mm-hmm. She loved me. I knew she loved me. And she, in the last year, she called me love because she couldn't remember my name. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. those kinds of painful things. But yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, that was actually one of my questions is like, what advice would you give to someone who's going through kind of like the same thing? So you I care. Yeah, you jumped right into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, caregiver. And then I, you know, and you were honest with like the guilt that you felt for, you know, looking for to. to someone to like hire because it's, it's exhausting for yeah. the care the caregivers whether that's um a professional or you know relatives it's it's exhausting and it's a lot for one person to take on definitely it is it definitely is and i was extremely lucky because we had the money to really have mm-hmm. the help that she needed um but what happened to me again with that is that mummy could snap at people which she did Frankly, when we were growing up with her, she could be very impatient. And but when she snapped at the caregivers, I felt like I was I was the teenager again, taking care of my little brothers and protecting Mm. them from her, from her anger or drinking. Mm. And I had to kind of step back and say, wait a minute, they aren't they aren't feeling the way I am. They are they aren't this woman's children. You know, Mm. they're they're doing their professional job and they were loving and accepting of her impatience and frustration because she didn't know where she was. Yeah. You know, she'd suddenly <clears throat> wake up in the middle of a movie. Mm, I, I was given lots of kudos to the professionals who just do that. Uh, like, they just have that headspace or they're, you know, yeah. they're in the zone. They're just in the zone. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> they're like, no, all right, this is just the patient. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. You know, just yes. going and-, and answering the same question over and over again. Doesn't matter. Yeah. You really have to, it's about patience too. Mm-hmm. acceptance and patience. It's yeah. hard. It's a very hard job. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so just a couple more questions here. What were the most challenging parts to write? And then what were the most enjoyable part like or parts to write because and I know this was like a different sort of project for you mm-hmm. and you already talked about like how like your experience of it so like kind of maybe the two part of it what was like yeah. the most challenging and what was like the most enjoyable that's a good question I think in an odd way writing about what I was going through day to day with her with her dementia was the easiest part it mm. was very present I was doing it, you know, every every day or every phone call or whatever. The hardest part was recreating their love affair because it felt almost arrogant. Mm. How could I how could I know what was that was like? I wasn't in the war, you know, I didn't know my father then. 
um, or obviously my mother. So I wanted very much to, it, it was why I decided, originally I was just going to write it straight, their story of their wonderful romantic courtship. Mm. Um, but then I decided to put together as a braided narrative so that my voice could be there in a more um, authentic way. Mm-hmm. In other words, and it also created this back and forth. So, you know, I'd say, I don't want to think about the bed sores right now. I want to go back to mummy, beautiful mm. and, and 18 years old and on the threshold of her life. So it kept me in the story in a more honest and authentic way. Mm-hmm. And I think that that helped me, you know, do that first part. The ending was not not hard to write because it was I was very close to it as she passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most beautiful thing was finding the letter she wrote. I, I say at the end, my mother was one of the first people who brought hospice to Washington, D.C. It was an English program, and she helped start it. And she okay. gave a speech. She gave a speech somewhere, I think it was in Canada, to hospice people. And she decided to tell her story. Yeah, I had never seen this. I had never heard her. And it was completely honest. And she, she didn't use the word alcoholism, but she admitted that after my father died, she totally fell apart. Mm. And she also um, turned out to be a great storyteller. Yeah. And so that was the arrogance of it that I thought, oh, well, I'm the storyteller. And it was literally <laughs> like a, a, a postcard from the grave. Yeah. It was like her last word to me. I'm a survivor. I'm proud of it. I made it. Yeah. And that that was the, the ending I needed. Absolutely. It was almost as if she gave me that ending. I had not finished the book when I found that. And yeah. she gave it to me. Oh, that's awesome. That, that yeah, mm-hmm. I can imagine how like special that would have felt. You know, like that's something that you didn't know about that she didn't she didn't like the, yeah, cuz like what you're a storyteller and you could you could you could speak in front of crowds, but I guess that's just those those uh years of you know, having to navigate and entertain yeah. and, and be, um, yeah. you know, your dad's wife. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's no, that's so cool that you found that at the perfect time and that you learned something totally like awesome about, about mm-hmm. and it. Yeah. And it's like, of course you would, you would find something like that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Coda. Lastly, any future projects? Uh, do you anything that you can you could talk about? Yeah, I have just finished a novel. So I had this best-selling children's classic fantasy series called The Castle in the Attic, and there was a sequel called The Battle for the Castle. Mm. And I've been bugged for years to write another book in that series. And I was, in fact, going to do it when I suddenly thought about telling my mother's story so i Mm. put it off and i finished it and it's a prequel which is interesting for me um and it was it was a joy to to dive back into fiction into a fantastical world um one funny story i have uh 13 year old twin granddaughters Mm. who love to read and in the beginning of covid they were on um, zoom all the time and my daughter said 
you know, mom, I'm going out of my mind. They don't have enough homework. They don't have enough to do. So I said, all right, I'm going to give them jobs. So I had them both. Each of them had to read one of the previous books. They had to take notes. Then they had to do answer research questions for me. And so I said, all right, because you've helped me, I'm going to put you in the book. And but you'll be kitchen maids. You know, it's a it's a 14th century book. You're just Mm. you'll be just side. Well, they marched into that book. They completely took it over. (laughs) They are absolutely crucial to the to the plot. (laughs) It's just terrible. And I was finishing it in June or July, and I couldn't bear to finish it because they are going to be left behind. It's a time travel book, and they're going to be left behind in the 1400s, and my character's coming back to 1943. So it was just a funny experience, but it's been a pleasure. That's awesome. That's so cool. And that's the first time you've ever, like, done something like that, right? Like, kind of? Yeah. I've okay. put them in picture books, you know, or I put my daughter and my son in various picture books, which is okay. highly embarrassing, but never mind. <laughs> but it was funny this summer, the twins, Sonia and Eve, were with me. And I said, you know, I really want you to read the prequel. You're actually pretty important. Yeah, well, whatever, Mima, we'll get to it. Oh, oh no. I mean, <laughs> my, my family is sort of dismissive. I have an uncle who once said, every time Elizabeth writes a book, it's like dodging a bullet. <laughs> just one of my favorite quotes that's so funny because so, if who knows if he's like the next idea or yes like, <laughs> exactly or the next kitchen maid or the next yeah, yeah i've heard that's funny. like common with um fi- like uh fiction writers because you know all of a sudden a character will have a dog and now they couldn't like imagine that right. dog not being a part of that character's life it's little things like that it's like i don't know they just showed up and ended up yes. like you know and that's I I think that's funny and cool and it's just yeah you just go with you just go with it right and you yeah. see where it's where the yeah. story's gonna go and that's yeah I love that and I yeah. but you know don't feel too bad about your your grand uh your granddaughters it might oh, just be like teenage teenage thing you know yeah I'm like, sure it is I'm not <laughs> I'm very used to it I mean I used to say I don't know if my son ever read any of my books and I I gave him he's 45 he's a father no. now and I, gave, I gave him daughter of spies and he says yeah well mom it's on the book sh- it's on the bedside table but there are a couple of books ahead of it you know oh okay <laughs> <laughs> Brings well, you, it brings you down a notch. Well, you made it to the reading list, you know. Exactly. Maybe that you've just made it like you've desensitized them to it because you've like yes. done so much. And so they're just like, yeah, okay. Oh, another one? Okay. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> true. It's very true. That's fun. Well, uh, Elizabeth Winthrop, I'll stop October 25th. Daughter of Spies, Wartime Secrets, Family Lies. Um, thank you so much. This was uh, so fun. I glad it's one thing to like read about someone's story, and so m- that much more awesome to like just speak to you and, and learn the other things about it. And this was such a fun conversation. Well, thank you, Megan. I really enjoyed it. Okay, and that was Elizabeth Winthrop Alsop, Daughter of Spies, Wartime Secrets, Family Lies. It comes out on October 25th. Um, You can find links to her social and to pre-order the book on the show notes. Um, Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. And follow us on um, Instagram and Twitter, uh, Cantina Book Club and The Nerd Cantina. 
and um, read my book reviews on thenerdcantina.com to stay up to date with uh, new books and new author interviews. Thanks for listening.